continuing in our study of Kings, 2 Kings, and we're up to chapter 14 right now, and we'll be going into fifth, chapter 15 as well today. Chapter 14 and verse 23, we've been continuing to study Kings with the history of the divided kingdom. Remember, we have the divided kingdom. We have the kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And that's been the history uh, all through 2 Kings. And that division took place in 931 B.C. And here we're winding down to the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. It's descending into chaos here. And we see that the cup of iniquity is full of the northern kingdom of Israel. So here we have 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Let's bow in prayer. O Lord, we pray that thou would bless the protest down in Brazil. We pray that many people might come out to that, that freedom might be restored down in Brazil. We pray, O Lord, that thou would help that uh, things may, might be done decently and in order down there. And O Lord, we pray that thou would turn them to thee, that thou would turn us to thee here this morning, that thou would teach us from this history of Israel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have the history of Israel today. We're going to be dealing with the northern kingdom, Israel today, and not the southern kingdom of the divided kingdom, but the northern kingdom. And right here we have Jeroboam comes to the throne. Now there's two Jeroboams in the history of Israel. There's the Jeroboam that starts the northern kingdom, and then there's this Jeroboam. He's also, also known as Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II here. And there was a golden age of Israel in the north under Jeroboam II. We have verse 23. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign. And then we have saying about Jeroboam II. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every king of the northern kingdom did evil all the way through. And yet God was patient with them. God was patient with them for over 200 years. God put up with their sin. God put up with their foolishness and before he judged them. But their cup of iniquity was getting fuller, more filled, more filled, more filled, until we're coming down here to the cup of iniquity being full. And the judgment of God was going to fall down upon Israel. 
You know, we read that scripture in the call to worship this morning from Revelation, where with Babylon the Great, the cup of iniquity was finally full, and God's judgment fell down upon Babylon the Great. Of course, I've said to you in the past that I believe that probably the United States is Babylon the Great, and we're filling up that cup of iniquity today with all the wickedness in our nation, all of the homosexuality, all of the abortion. We did get rid of Roe versus Wade, but abortion still goes on pretty much the same as before in the States. And so that cup of iniquity is getting more filled and more filled here in America, and it was getting filled up to the top here with Israel at the time here of chapter 14. And here's the last, the last death uh, rally of Israel here under Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, verse 24, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. We've looked at this before. And the first Jeroboam, he set up the golden calves at Dan and Bethel. And he had the people worship the golden calves, had their false worship there. And all through the history of Israel, all through it, down through the 200 years, nobody departed from that false worship. And the Bible always repeats that they departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. Even though it was accepted, even though the people kept on doing it, it was still wrong and God was still going to judge them for it. We were talking this morning about progressive Christianity today. Actually, I've never actually heard those two words used together, progressive Christianity, but it's good. It's good because that describes it pretty good, just like progressive politics. We got progressive politics and we got progressive Christianity, and progressive Christianity wants to depart from the past, depart from the old, tried, and proven ways. And, of course, progressive Christianity, that's pretty well taken over the church today. Most all churches are involved in that, with contemporary music, with the contemporary scene, and everybody's in that, everybody's doing it, they've been doing it for years and years, and yet is it accepted with God? I don't believe it's really accepted with God, that it's not how it should be done. And that's how it was here in Israel. They had the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Well, we have in verse 25, here we have Jeroboam the second. He was able to expand Israel. And he expanded it to Hamath, up to Syria. He expanded it down to the Mediterranean Ocean, to the Sea of the Plain. And this had been prophesied before, way back by Jonah. Remember Jonah, the guy that got swallowed by the whale? Well, this is that same Jonah, Jonah the son of Amittai. I went back and looked at the book of Jonah, and that's exactly what it is. Jonah the son of Amittai. That's the same Jonah. And he prophesied that Israel would get bigger before it would come to the end. And that's what happened here. God was gracious to Israel for a little while here toward the end for a death rally. You know, sometimes when somebody's dying, they have a death rally just before the end. And that's what we have here with Israel, just before the end. 
And then we see what happened there in verse 26. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. And then verse 27, the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, at least not yet. And he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. Do you remember the cycle of sin? We've looked at that before here as well from 2 Kings. There's a cycle of sin that it repeats itself and repeats itself in our lives, in the church, in Israel, in history, the cycle of sin. The cycle of sin is, first, people are prosperous. They're all prosperous, doing well, but then they forget God. And they turn away from God. They go down around the circle. They've turned away from God. Then God judges them and sends punishment upon them to turn them back to the Lord. And they keep going around the circle. They've turned from the Lord. They've been prosperous, turned from the Lord. God's judgment comes. And then they turn to the Lord again and pray. The Lord sends them a deliverer. The Lord delivers them from their problems when they turn to him. And then they go back to being prosperous. And when they go back to being prosperous, well, then they tend to forget the Lord again and go back into the sin and the cycle repeats itself and repeats itself. You see that all through the Old Testament, all through it. That cycle of sin repeating itself. In the book of Judges, it's very clear. And here we have that cycle of sin here, except here we have the good part of the cycle of sin in that here we have down at the bottom, verse 26, the Lord saw the affliction. And then verse 27, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. And you know, all through this, the Bible and all through the history of Israel, you know what we really see? we really see the patience of God. God is patient. God is long-suffering. And they're, they're never turning away from their golden calves. They're never turning away from their sin. But for over 200 years, God kept being patient, being patient with their wicked ways. But here it was the cup of iniquity was getting all the way full. Now let's go over to chapter 15, and we see Israel, the northern kingdom, descending into chaos. After Jeroboam II, it descends into chaos. And the last 40 years here of of Israel in the north, it gets very chaotic with all these kings that come on the scene. And one conspires against the other and gets put in power. Everybody wants to be in power. There's a constant change of kings here at the end. Verse 8 of chapter 15 of 2 Kings. In the 30 and 8th year of Azariah, king of Judah, did Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reign over Israel in Samaria six months. He only lasted six months here. And skip down to verse 10. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. Well, you know, uh, what's really dangerous for kings is the people right around them. Those are the people that will betray him. They're the ones that will kill him. Back in the Roman Empire, there was the Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard was the palace guard And when they would turn against the king, they would kill him. 
and they'd put another guy in there. And so the king always had to be concerned about those in high places around him. Uh, that's why in Cameroon, in Cameroon, where we were missionaries, I think I, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but the same guy has been president there for 40 years over there in Cameroon. And he is very concerned about keeping his rule there. And so he's always changing the ministers and the people next to him. He doesn't want them to get too much power, too much authority. They don't want, he doesn't want anybody to be the heir apparent. And so he keeps on changing them. One of the men in our churches over there, in our fundamentalist churches, he rose to be the minister in charge of the national police, the gendarmerie. But he didn't last there very long, and nobody lasts very long because the president's always changing them to make sure nobody conspires against him. And that's how it was here in Israel. They had people conspiring against the king, always. You know what they said back in the Roman Empire? In the Roman Empire, with all the intrigues and conspiracies and kings being killed and whatever, they said that poison is queen in the Roman Empire. They used to poison the kings that were in power. And you know, another interesting thing about the kings that are in power, there's basically only two choices for a king. In, a king. He can either be in power or he can be dead, one or the other. They don't generally get out of power and stay alive because the next king doesn't want that threat to their authority, so they put him to death. And that's what happened right here in verse 10. Shalom conspired against him, smote him, and slew him. And notice here, Shalom smites him before the people. Evidently, in an assembly there, he rose up and killed the king and reigned in his stead. And then you go on down to verse 12. And this is a chaotic situation in Israel at this time. Verse 12. This was the word of the Lord which he spoke unto Jehu, saying, Thy sons shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. You know, when Jehu came to the throne and he executed judgment against Athaliah, and he, well, no, against Jezebel, not Athaliah. He executed judgment against Jezebel, and God promised him that his sons would reign on the throne for four generations. That's exactly what came to pass right here. It's, that was, you know, when these prophecies are given in the Bible, they're always fulfilled very literally. And when God said the fourth generation would be on the throne of Jehu's descendants, that's exactly what happened. And then you go on here, the next guy, verse 13. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the nine and thirtieth year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month. He only lasted one month, not six months, but one month. Verse 14, for Menahem, the son of Gadi went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and smote Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and slew him and reigned in his stead. So it's just a constant revolving door here in Israel at the end. It's descending into chaos at the time of the end. And God is giving up the northern kingdom of Israel 
and going to have it go into captivity. But here it has chaos at the end. So here uh, Menahem comes up. It looks like maybe Menahem was a general that was out in the field when Shalom killed the king. And so Menahem came back after a month and killed Shalom. And then you go on down to verse 16. The revolving door continues. Then Menahem smote Tifsa and all that were therein and the coast thereof from Terza, because they opened not to him. Therefore he smote it, and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. They were pretty vengeful, pretty uh, spiteful here. And Menahem, when he took power, there were some cities that didn't open up to him, that didn't welcome him, that fought against him. And he was very spiteful toward them, and he went to the point of ripping up the pregnant women. That was the ultimate in spite. Well, you know, uh, I was looking at a history of World War II and recently, and I have in the past too, and, and you know, uh, in World War II, the aim of the U.S. And, and Great Britain was to make firestorms in the enemy cities of Japan and Germany. You know, they had already seen with the Battle of Britain that those, that bombing of civilian centers in London didn't do any good. It just made the population mad. And yet they kept, went on to do it, make firestorms in Dresden and Tokyo. And why did the U.S. and why did England do that? When they saw, could have seen that it didn't work with London, they did it, I think, because out of spite. Unfortunately, I have to say that. And of course, here we have uh, Maniah, out of spite. He rips up the women with child. And then we go on to verse 19. And Pool, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. And Menahem exacted the money of Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth, of each man fifty shekels of silver, to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. So we have this chaos going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's chaos internally. They've got people fighting, conspiring, the king's changing month after month, year after year. And then you also have the, the pressure from outside, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the great empire of that time. And they were coming down and taking over Israel. And here uh, the Assyrians told Menahem that he had to give or he gave them a thousand talents of silver. And of course, do you remember how much a talent is? A talent was a measure of weight back then. A talent was a hundred pounds. And so Menahem gave to the king of Assyria how much silver? He gave him a thousand talents. That's a hundred thousand pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. And where did he get all that silver from? Well, he went to the people and to the rich people and made them give him all their silver so he could get together 100,000 pounds to give to the Assyrians. So the Assyrians would leave him in power. And so Menahem 
was left in power as he got all that silver together. Well, then we go on down to verse 23. The revolving door continues. Verse 23, in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. This guy only lasted two years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go down to verse 25. But Pekah, the son of Remaliah, a captain of his, conspired against him and smote him in Samaria in the palace of the king's house with Argob and Aria, and with him fifty men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and reigned in his room. So you know these names are kind of confusing here. As we've said before, you've got a lot of same guys named Joash, same guys with the name, uh, uh, different names here. But anyway, here we have Pekah, and we have Pekahiah. First you got Pekahiah, and then you got Pekah. Pekah conspires against Pekahiah and kills him and reigns in his stead. So the revolving door continues. Let me go on down to verse 29. Chapter 15 and verse 29, the revolving door is going to stop revolving here. Verse 29 of chapter 15. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ijon and abel beth and Genoa and Kedesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. And Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So the revolving door is coming to the end. Finally, Hoshea comes to power. Hoshea. And the Assyrians are still putting pressure against Israel. And they've come in and they've carried off Galilee, uh, where Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up. They've carried off all the land of Naphtali. They've carried them captive to Assyria. Uh, they've carried part of the land captive of Israel. And here internally, Hoshea is conspiring against Pekah, and he kills him and becomes the last king of Israel, is Hoshea. Then let's skip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, and we see the summary here, chapter 17, with Hoshea and the very time of the end. Chapter 17, and the cup of iniquity is being filled. Chapter 17 and verse 2, we read this for the responsive reading earlier, so we don't have to read everything here. But he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, Hoshea, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. He has a little mitigating something. He wasn't quite as bad as some of the other ones had been. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his servant, and gave him presents. So the cup of iniquity of Israel has finally been filled. And here we're coming to the time of the end. It took 200 years for the cup of iniquity to be filled. How long is it going to take for the United States' cup of iniquity to be filled? Well, 
We've had a little over 200 years now. We've had 245 years or something like that. Uh, we might get to 300 years, who knows? But the thing is, we might not get that far. It might be very close to being filled today. The cup of iniquity of Babylon the Great. And so here we have that cup of iniquity of Israel. And God was very patient, very long-suffering, putting up with it for 200 years. And then verse 4. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea. For he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So back in those days when kings were vassals, when they were servants to other kings, they would bring big presents. Of course, we already had that 100,000 pounds of silver that uh, were given to the Assyrians. And so they would give presents every year. But here, uh, just uh, to fulfill God's prophecy of the cup of iniquity and the judgment of God, to fulfill all of that, Hoshea rebels against Assyria. Rebels. He doesn't bring his present. And he sends messengers to sow king of Egypt. Of course, at that time, the big power was Assyria, but of course, Egypt was always there as a big power as well. And Israel was always looking, Judah was always looking to Egypt for help. Because Egypt, you would think that they would want to help Israel against the Assyrians, because the Assyrians were coming down and would get to Egypt eventually. Well, anyway... Uh, Hoshea had sent messengers to Egypt. He was looking to Egypt for help, but no help came from Egypt. You know, when God's judgment comes down, there's no help for it. We're not going to get any help from men. We're not going to get any help if God's judgment is the pandemic. We're not going to get any help through other things, through masks, through uh, six feet distance or through vaccines or all that, if that's the judgment of God, uh, nothing will help. If the fire of God falls down, fire departments aren't going to help us. It's, uh, the thing is, we can't look to man. We have to look to God, look to him. And so here, unfortunately, Hoshea, of course, they were all in their wickedness and they were looking to Egypt for help. Verse 5, here we come to the very end of the kingdom of Israel. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. Besieged it three years. You know, that's a long siege. Probably has to be one of the longest sieges in history. Three years, that's a long one, for them to have shut up a city, and the city having enough food and water and everything to keep on going for three years. Uh, I may have mentioned before, when I went over to Istanbul, over in Turkey, and that was the old Constantinople, and you can go underneath the city there, and all underneath the city was a huge cistern for water for the sieges that they had. And they were built to withstand sieges, but a siege of three years, practically no city could over, undergo. 
And so here we have three years he besieged it. Verse 6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them over there in Assyria. And of course, the, the practice here with the Assyrians and the Babylonians was in order to weaken the vassal states and in order to weaken the captives, they would transport the captives, the captive nations like Israel, they would transport them over to a different part of Assyria so that they would be out of place, out of sorts, and not so ready to rebel against the kingdom of Assyria. <clears throat> you know, uh, I've been reading this uh, book, uh, The Long Walk. I gave some of you that book. But anyway, it's a very good book. You know, the Soviets, when they got prisoners during World War II, I don't know if they still do it today, but they had a way to put the prisoners out of sorts. And the way to put the prisoners out of sorts was they would give them pants that were too big for them with no belts on them. And so the prisoner would have to have one hand always holding up their pants. So they couldn't, uh, you know, escape or do much being occupied with one of their hands all the time. And uh, that, was, that was their practice for prisoners. And uh, that's how it was with the Assyrians. The Assyrians would take the people and carry them off captive to a different country to make them out of sorts and not more able to rebel. So then we have verse 7, the summary. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared other gods. We were talking about here in Sunday school this morning, God is a jealous God, a jealous God. And you know the thing is, God is not pleased when we have God as just one of our gods. If we have God plus money, God plus pleasure, God plus Baal, no, he was, he's a jealous God. And here they feared other gods, Israel did, and they walked in the statutes of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And so remember when Joshua and the children of Israel went into the promised land, they cast out the Canaanites, they killed them, they got rid of them, chased them out. God didn't want them to go into those sins that the Canaanites had. But here it says, anyway, they went into those sins anyway. They walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So here we have Israel's cup of iniquity that has finally gotten filled up after 200 years. And finally God judges them and carries them off into captivity. And you know what do we see about that for us? We can see that God's patience is long. God can put up with our sin for a long time, but eventually his patience has an end. And his patience had an end here in Israel. And, you know, we can keep on sinning and keep on sinning, and God's patience will eventually have an end. Of course, I'll tell you, if we keep on sinning and keep on sinning and nothing bad ever happens to us, what does that tell us? 
That tells us we're not really a Christian because God is going to deal with us, especially with Christians. And the thing is, is that God is an example for us. You know, we should be patient with people around us. We should be patient as God is patient. And, but we do see that God's patience finally has an end. And let us pray that God's patience doesn't have an end with us. You know, always when we come to communion, we read the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And that's when God's patience has run out with people. And so let us turn to the Lord. Let us be patient as God is patient, and let us serve him with our whole hearts and not have our cup of iniquity be filled up. Let's bow in prayer. O Lord, we pray that thou bless these thoughts to our hearts. And O Lord, help us to be patient as thou art patient. And we do see thy patience with Israel. We do see thy patience with us every day. And O Lord, we pray that thou would continue to be patient with us. We pray that thou would turn us from our sin, that thou would help us to be the Christians that thou would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.